well, hello everybody. It's so good to see all of you. As Kyle said, my name is Chris Ward. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And uh, as we begin here, very, very important message. I took a risk this weekend with the Christmas sweater. What do you think? Yay, nay, yes? Okay, good. Some of you I can tell are on the fence. I'm a little bit on the fence as well. We'll see if this survives until tomorrow morning. But you can go ahead and grab your Bibles right now and turn to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34 is where we are today. Just so you know, I also got a Christmas haircut for today. This is all for you. Ezekiel 34. And as you turn there, uh, you know, if you were here last weekend, you may remember Matthew opened up the message last weekend with the story about little Johnny or Jimmy. I kind of forgot his name. But Johnny or Jimmy, if you remember, he was the guy who not only stole the baby Jesus from the manger. But he's also the one who, in the story Matthew told last week, he's the one who uh, sat down and he drew a picture of God. And as Matthew was telling that story last weekend, it reminded me of something that my son Lucas did about two and a half years ago. This is when he was six, he's nine now, and this was during the summer of 2020. And some of you may remember during the summer of 2020, I did an online study through the book of Revelation. And one of the interesting things about Revelation is Revelation is actually the only place in our Bible where we get a physical description of what Jesus looks like. And it's kind of an interesting description. We're told in the book of Revelation, for example, that because Jesus is in his resurrected, glorified state, that he has hair as white as wool. We're told that he has eyes that are like flames. And we're even told that he has like a sword that is coming out of his mouth. Well, I remember as I was preparing for the study, I was sitting in the living room and Lucas was sitting next to me. And so I started sharing with my son some of what I was learning. And kind of out of nowhere, Lucas got up and he ran into the dining room. He, he grabbed a piece of paper and he started drawing a picture. And I said, Lucas, what is it that you're drawing? And he said, well, I'm, I'm drawing a picture of Jesus. I'm drawing Jesus as he looks in Revelation. And I've actually never shared this picture with you before on a weekend service. I did share it in that online study. But in light of the story of Johnny or Jimmy last week, I thought that I would share with you this weekend the, the picture that my then six-year-old son drew of Jesus. So compared to Johnny's God, here is a picture of Jesus as drawn by my six-year-old son. And isn't that a great picture? I've always, always loved that picture. And I was looking at that picture again this past week, and there were three things especially that stood out to me about that picture. The first thing that stood out to me is Jesus' height. Now just for full disclosure, we are never told in the Bible how tall Jesus is. But I think my son has it right. Don't you think he was kind of tall, 6'4", 6'5", something like that? I think my son has his height right. So that's the first thing I love. Second thing I love about his picture, you see his eyes there? My son got the eyes of flames, as he's described in the book of Revelation. So I've always loved that. And then the final thing I've always loved about that picture is what Jesus is holding in his hands. If you see in his left hand there, he's holding a cloud, and above the cloud, he's holding a cross. And then do you know what that is that he's holding in his right hand? Baseball mitt? No, it's the world. He's holding the world in his hand. And I remember I asked Lucas why he drew a picture of Jesus holding the world, and he said to me rather matter-of-factly, he said, well, Dad, it's because of the song. You know, he's got the whole world in his hands. And I thought, yes, that's awesome, son. So if you have ever wondered what Jesus looked like, there you go right there, okay? At least through the eyes of a six-year-old, that is Jesus. And here's the reason I share that picture with you at the beginning of today's message. And that is because that picture right there, in many ways, that actually expresses my goal for today's message. And my goal for today's message is really, really simple, okay? Today, I want to show you Jesus. 
Today, I want to, want to paint you a portrait of Jesus. You know, as you have been reminded several times in this service, and I myself cannot believe it, we are one week away from Christmas. We are one week away from celebrating Jesus' birth. I mean, this season has gone by so quickly for me. I don't know if that's the case for you. But because we are just one week away from Jesus' birth, I really believe that the best thing that I can do here this weekend is just to show you Jesus. So that's what we're going to do. And in order to do that, we're going to begin today in what may seem like a very unlikely place in our Bibles to find him. And that is the Old Testament book of Ezekiel and the chapter 34 that I have brought you here today. Let me set the scene for you, okay? The book of Ezekiel was written about 600 years before the very first Christmas, before Jesus came on the scene. And it was written right as the nation of Israel was about ready to be plunged into its season of greatest difficulty and darkness. And that's because there was a foreign empire, the Babylonian Empire, who actually at this point had already begun to invade the nation of Israel. And they had begun to take some of the Israelites captive. And eventually they would force them out of their homeland and they would force them to live in a foreign country. And as you read through the Old Testament, it is very clear why God has allowed this to happen to his chosen people. And the reason why God has allowed it to happen, it comes down to one thing, and that is disobedience, okay? For centuries, the Israelites failed to do what it is that God wanted them to do. And although God gave the Israelites opportunity after opportunity to get their act together, they just would not do that. So finally, God got to a place where he said, okay, that's enough. And he removed his protection from the Israelites, and that's what allowed these foreign nations to invade them. Now, as you read through the Old Testament, one of the things that you will see is that it is clear that all of the Israelites are to blame for this destruction. The, the Old Testament makes it clear that basically all the Israelites were sinful in some way, shape, or form. So that is clear. At the same time, however, as you read through the Old Testament, it becomes very clear that there's one group in Israel in particular that God sort of places the most blame on for leading Israel astray. And you know who that is? It's the leaders of Israel. It's especially the kings and the priests of Israel. They get the brunt of the responsibility, of the blame for leading Israel astray. And that is exactly who the first couple of verses of Ezekiel 34 are all about. Pick it up with me in verse 1. The prophet Ezekiel is speaking here and he's relaying a message that God gave him to preach. And this is what it says. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? And we'll stop right there for right now. And here you see the beginning of this message that God gives to the prophet Ezekiel to preach. And as you see there, it is a message specifically against what is called here the shepherds of Israel. As God says in verse 2, he says, prophesy against the shepherds in Israel. And what you need to understand, brothers and sisters, is that when God refers to the shepherds in Israel here... He is not referring to literal shepherds who watch over literal flocks, okay? It's very clear throughout this passage that shepherds is being used in a figurative, metaphorical way. And who God is referring to when he talks about the shepherds of Israel is he's referring to the leaders of Israel. He's referring to the kings and he's referring to the priests. And that's who Ezekiel is supposed to prophesy against. Now, I will say this. It is very telling 
that God would choose to call the leaders in Israel shepherds. Because that is actually reveals something very important about how God views a, a sort of confusing issue, I think, in our day and age. And that is that when God calls the leaders in Israel shepherds, it, it reveals what God views, what God thinks about the task of leadership, okay? And what it is that God requires of his leaders here on this earth. You know, we live in a day and an age that is sort of, in my opinion, it's kind of obsessed with leadership. And there's a lot of different opinions out there about what makes a good leader and how to be a good leader and so on. In fact, if you go to Amazon, I did that this past week, you will see that there are literally over 60,000 books that are written simply on the subject of leadership. And listen, I imagine that a lot of those books have a lot of good information in them. But as people who take our cues from God's word, I want to let you know that in God's perspective, leadership is a very straightforward task. Because in God's eyes, in the Bible's eyes, there is really only one thing that is required of a leader. And you know what it is? It's servants. In the Bible, successful leadership is always defined in terms of how you serve the people who are entrusted to your care. And that is exactly what is caught up in this idea of God calling the leaders of Israel shepherds. Because think about it, I've talked about this before, but what is a shepherd's entire job? Well, a shepherd's entire job is to serve its flock, right? A shepherd's entire job is wrapped up in taking care of beings other than itself. It's wrapped up in the welfare of beings, of creatures other than itself. And that's what successful leadership is in God's eyes. It's always defined in terms of how well you serve those under your care. Now, if you know anything about the leaders that Israel had in its history, then you will know that that's not how the leaders in Israel often viewed their job. No, that throughout their history, the leaders in Israel, they looked at their job not as a way to serve other people. They looked at their job as a way to serve themselves. And this is exactly the charge that God brings against the leaders in Israel. Look with me at verse 3. God brings this accusation against the leadership of Israel at this time. And he says this. He says, you eat the curds, you clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. And essentially what God is saying here is he's saying, leaders in Israel, you are using the positions that you are in. To take care of yourselves, but you're not taking care of the people. You're serving yourselves, but you're not serving the people. And by the way, men and women, this is always the temptation involved with leadership. Whenever you ascend to a position of power or influence, whenever you ascend to a position of leadership, the temptation is always to begin to use your position, to begin to use your power and influence as a way to get your own needs met rather than to meet the needs of the people that you are serving. I experienced this a few weeks ago. So a few weeks ago, right here in this building, was my son Lucas's Christmas concert for his school. And because Lucas goes to Friends Christian School, and because I'm one of the pastors here, uh, the school asked if I would open up this Christmas concert with a prayer. And I was more than happy to do that. Well, because I volunteered to open up this prayer, the school, they reserved some seats in this building for the concert for me and my family. And you know what seats they reserved? They reserved this front row of seats right over here. They reserved some of the best seats in the entire building. 
And I got to tell you, I felt so self-conscious during the entire concert. Because my family and I, we were some of the only people in this building to get reserved seats. And I know what the parents of other kids were thinking. I know that some of them were looking at us and they were thinking, Huh, I see how it is. Must be nice to be a pastor here at Friends Church. You know, here we have to get here an hour early. Here we have to stand in line. Here we have to fight for our seats. And Pastor Chris and his family, they just get the red carpet rolled out for them. They get to stroll on in and they get to get the best seats in the entire worship center. It must be nice to be a pastor at Friends Church. I know that's what some people were feeling. And you know what? If you were feeling that way, because some of you were there, you were right to feel that way. In fact, I really believe that if I were the leader, if I were the shepherd that God had called me to be in that moment, I would have refused those seats. I would have let someone else have them. I would have sat in the worst seats in this worship center. But even I fell victim to the temptation that is always present in leadership. I use my position to serve myself rather than to serve others. Now that being said, I got some fantastic pictures from those seats over there. So you better believe I'm going to ask for the same seats again next year, okay? But no, just kidding. But that is always the temptation present in leadership. And Israel saw this in their leaders over and over and over again. In fact, when you think about it, even the best leader that Israel ever had, even he fell victim to this temptation. And that's King David. Remember his story? When he used his position of power and influence to sleep with another man's wife? And then when that didn't go the way that he anticipated it going, he ended up using his position ultimately to basically murder her husband. Even David did that. And listen, if that's what the best king that Israel ever had did, can you imagine what their worst kings did? Can you imagine the selfishness and the wickedness that they practiced? Well, let me tell you something about our God, okay? God does not tolerate that sort of behavior for long. In fact, I was thinking this past week, I cannot think of a group of people in Scripture who come under a harsher and and stricter judgment from God than selfish leaders. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. Pick it up here in verse 7. Here God tells us what he's going to do with the leaders of Israel. And this is what he says. He says, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. And here we see what God is going to do with the leaders of Israel. And what's he going to do? Well, as we see there, he says he's going to remove them from their positions of power. And he is going to hold them accountable for what it is that they have done. And by the way, just sort of as an aside, brothers and sisters, this should serve as a warning to any of us who is in this room, who is in a position of leadership in any way, shape, or form. Listen, if you have people under your care, whether they be in your family or in your job or your school, and you are not serving them in the way that God wants you to serve them, you are taking advantage of them, you'd better be careful. Because it's only a matter of time before God will defend his own and he will remove you from your position of leadership. I have seen it happen time and time and time and time again. God will not tolerate selfish leadership for too long. And that's what we see in this passage. 
But God's decision here to remove the leaders of Israel, it creates a little bit of a problem. And the problem of this is God, if God is going to remove the leaders from Israel, well, then who is going to lead his people? I mean, people need a leader, brothers and sisters, and sheep need a shepherd. You, you probably remember that video that Matthew shared a few months ago of that sheep that got rescued from a ditch only to fall back in it just a few seconds later, right? Sheep need a shepherd. People need a leader. So if God is going to remove the, the, the leaders from Israel, then who is going to shepherd his people? Well, you've probably heard this phrase before, and the phrase goes like this. If you want something done right, what? You better do it yourself. And that's exactly what God says he's going to do. Pick it up in verse 11. I'm going to read all the way through verse 16 here because I love this passage. Here's God's plan for his people. Verse 11. It says, For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements of the land. I will tend them in good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will eat uh, in a rich feed, in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. Verse 15. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. And I love that passage because you know what God is saying there? Those of you who have been parents before, you understand this. Remember when your your kids were first born and, and you almost didn't want anybody else to hold them? You almost didn't want anybody else to look after them. I remember when when Lucas was first born, I don't think my wife let anybody hold him for the first six months of his life. And I don't think she was alone in that. And why is that? Well, it's because you love your children so much and you almost don't trust anybody else to take care of them in the way that you will take care of them. Well, brothers and sisters, that's what God says here about his people. That's what God says about you and me. He says, I've come to the place where I don't trust anybody else to take care of my people, anybody else to shepherd my people. So what am I going to do? I'm going to do it myself. And really what God is saying here is he is saying, there is coming a day when I'm going to come down to this earth and I am going to be their shepherd and I'm going to care for them and I'm going to take care of them because that is how much I love them. That's what God says here. That's why, by the way, I don't like it when anybody says that the God of the Old Testament is only angry all the time. And it's only when we get to the New Testament that we see the love of God. No, that's ridiculous. God is the same throughout the Bible. And in fact, I think Ezekiel 34 is one of the best chapters in the Bible to see God's love for us. Because here we see the shepherding care and concern that God has for us. That's what's on display here. But it's at this point I can imagine that maybe some of you have a question in your mind. And the question is, okay Chris, but but where's Jesus? You said at the beginning of this message that you're going to show us Jesus. You're going to paint us a portrait of Jesus. You haven't really done that yet. You've talked about leadership. You've talked about God. That's good. But you haven't really talked about Jesus. Chris, where is Jesus in this passage? And where is Jesus in this message? Well, you know what? Jesus has been all over this passage. And he has been all over this message. And I'm going to prove that to you right now. Do me a favor. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 10 now. Okay? We're going to leave Ezekiel 34 behind. John chapter 10. The book of John was written 650 years or so after the book of Ezekiel was written. And so, yes, it was written after Jesus was born here on this earth. In fact, the book of John is all about Jesus' life and Jesus' ministry. 
And one of the things that scholars have observed before about the book of John that's unique to the gospel of John is that there are what is called the seven I am statements of Jesus in the gospel of John. It's seven times where Jesus declares something about himself. This is where you find the famous statements like I am the light of the world and I am the bread of life and I am the resurrection and life and so on. Well, there is one of these I am statements that I've always believed has been one of the most misinterpreted and misunderstood I am statement of Jesus. And that is in John chapter 10, verse 11, when we're told Jesus gets in front of a group of Jewish people and he declares this about himself. He says, I am the good shepherd, he says. He says, I am the good shepherd. Now, here's what I want to say about that statement. Like some of you, I have grown up in the church which means I have heard countless sermons and I have heard countless devotionals on that one statement right there. And usually when I have heard a sermon on that statement, what most pastors say is they say that in that statement, Jesus is making just sort of a revelation about his character. He is talking about he is love, how loving he is and kind he is and caring he is and compassionate he is. And listen, I absolutely believe that Jesus is doing that. Jesus is making a revelation about his character. But I also believe there's something else that Jesus is doing in that statement. I believe Jesus isn't just making a revelation about his character. I believe Jesus is making a revelation about his identity. You see, Jesus knows who he's speaking to, men and women. He's speaking to a group of people who are very familiar with Ezekiel 34, and they are very familiar with this promise that one day God would come to this earth, and he himself would be the leader. He himself would be the shepherd of his people. And so when Jesus stands up in front of them, and he says, I am the good shepherd, Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34. I am God come to this earth to be your shepherd. You see, in this statement here, Jesus is not just making a revelation about his character, he is making a revelation about his identity. In this statement, Jesus is declaring that he is nothing less than God himself, than God here on this earth. And one of the reasons I know that is look at the reaction that the people have to this statement. Look with me at John chapter 10, verse 19. Soon after Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, it says this. It says, the Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? Now, men and women, why would Jesus declaring that he is a shepherd cause people to say that he is demon-possessed and raving mad? Well, the only reason I can think of is if because people see in this statement more than meets the eye. And I believe that's exactly what is going on here. When Jesus declares that he is the good shepherd, what Jesus is making clear in no uncertain terms is I am your God. I am your God who has come to this earth to fulfill what I said 600 years ago in Ezekiel 34. This is a statement about Jesus' identity. And I want to make it clear here, brothers and sisters, that that is what we believe about Jesus. We believe that Jesus is God, and, and that raises a question, and the question is this, do you believe that too? And have you put your trust in Jesus as your God? Have you put your trust in Jesus as your good shepherd? You know, in this series of promised one that we have been in for the last several weeks, we have taken a look at four Old Testament passages, each of which were written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, and yet each of which described Jesus, as Matthew said last weekend, in stunning detail. 
In the first passage in this series, for example, we looked at a passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where it says that the, the coming Messiah would be the descendant of David himself. Well, guess what? That's exactly what the Bible says that Jesus was. And then in the next couple of weeks, we looked at passages in Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 53 that talked about how Jesus, the, or the, the coming Savior, would be born of a virgin. He would be the mighty God. He would have the government on his shoulders. He would die a sacrificial death for sins, and then he would rise from the dead. Well, guess what? Jesus did every single one of those things. And then this week, we look at a passage in Ezekiel 34 that talks about a coming good shepherd who would give himself for the sake of his people. And that's exactly what Jesus did as well. And so here are four passages, each of which were written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, and yet each of which describe Jesus in such incredible detail. And what I want to let you know, friends, is that in this series, we have only scratched the surface of prophecies in the Old, Bi- in the Old Testament, passages in the Old Testament, which predict the coming of Jesus, all of which Jesus fulfilled during his life and his ministry. In fact, Lee Strobel, who was here several weeks ago, In one of his books, he talks about how uh, scholars believe that there are probably at least 48 different prophecies of the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled. 48 different passages of scripture written well before his birth that Jesus fulfilled during his life and his ministry. And Lee Strobel, he gave this number to a mathematician because he wanted to see the odds that someone would be able to fulfill 48 prophecies written hundreds of years before his birth. And so this mathematician, he, he started out conservatively. And he decided that he wanted to see the odds that someone would be able to fulfill just eight prophecies. Jesus fulfilled at least 48, but he wanted to see the odds that someone would be able to fulfill just eight prophecies. So he crunched some numbers. And he found out that the odds that someone would be able to fulfill just eight prophecies written hundreds of years before their birth is one in 100 quadrillion. That is one in the number one with 17 zeros after it. To give you a sense of that, that would be like me taking this gold tile that I have right here. And it would be like me covering all the uh, visible landmass in the world with tiles exactly this size and shape. From here all the way to China, to Russia, to Antarctica, you name it. And then it would be like me taking a a plane trip to some random location in the world. It would be like me picking one of those tiles, turning it over, and drawing an X on the back of it. And then it would be like me giving you a plane ticket and saying, you can fly anywhere in the world, and you can turn over just one tile. And the odds that you would turn over the tile that I drew an X on would be the odds that someone would be able to fulfill just eight prophecies. But as I said, Jesus fulfilled at least 48 prophecies. And so the same mathematician ran the numbers on that. And you know what he found out? He found out that the odds that someone would be able to fulfill 48 prophecies are one in, get this, one in a trillion, 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 trillion. Men and women, you are more likely to win the Powerball, be struck by lightning, and meet Danny DeVito all at the same second than fulfill those odds. And yet that's what Jesus did. And you know what that means? That is evidence, as they say, that demands a verdict. That is evidence that requires a decision. You know, the Bible does not allow us to believe, men and women, that Jesus was just some good guy who taught some good things here on this earth. 
The Bible doesn't even allow us to believe that Jesus was some enlightened man or even God-like. No, the Bible makes it clear that Jesus is nothing less than God himself, the Son of God here on this earth to lead and to save his people. And guess what? It's time for some of you to believe that. It's time for some of you to get off the fence and to put your trust in this Jesus. You know, I know there are a number of reasons why people come to church. And whatever it is that brings you here this weekend, you are absolutely welcome here. You are always welcome here. But I want to let you know at this church, we believe something very specific. We believe that Jesus is God. And we believe the best decision that you can make in this life is to believe that as well. And to make Jesus your God. To make him your Lord. To make him your Savior. To make him your Shepherd. And we don't think this decision requires some blind leap of faith. No, we actually believe it's one of the most rational, reasonable decisions that you can make in this life. So are you ready to do that? Now, I know there are a number of people in this room that have already made that decision. Well, I got news for you. We don't get off the hook in this message, okay? We have a responsibility as well. Because the responsibility that we have is to tell others about this Jesus. I love what Jesus says in verse 16 of John chapter 10. Soon after saying that he is the good shepherd, it says this. He says, I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. And what Jesus is saying there is he's saying, I have other sheep who don't yet call me shepherd but I want them to. And who are these other sheep? Well, in our day and age, they are our neighbors, they are our co-workers, they are the people we run into at the supermarket, they are the people that we run into at the gym, they are the people in our life who do not know Jesus that I believe that God has placed in our life for one very specific purpose, and that is to share Jesus with them. You've all heard the story because I've told it to you before, the story that imagines that moment that Jesus ascends into heaven after his time here on this earth is finished. And an angel comes up to Jesus and he says to Jesus, Wow, Jesus, you must really love the people on that earth. I mean, you gave your life for them. So tell me, Jesus, what's the plan that you have to get the news of what you've done to the people on that earth? And Jesus' response to the angel is this. He says, Well, I left 12 people on that earth who knows what, know what it is that I did. And I've given them the responsibility to tell other people about me. And then I've told them to tell the people that they tell about me, to tell other people, and so on and so forth. And eventually the entire world is going to know what I've done. And this angel, he almost can't believe that. And so he says to Jesus, he says, Jesus, you know the people on that earth are kind of flaky. He says, what if they don't tell other people? What if there's a generation of people that rise up and they get scared to talk about you? What's your backup plan then to get the news of what you've done to the rest of the world? And Jesus' response is this. He says, I have no backup plan. There is no backup plan. We're it. And may I remind you, men and women, we are heading into what I think is literally the best week on this, in this entire year to tell others about Jesus. I don't think there is a single week in the year when more people are open to hearing about Jesus, to being invited to a church service, than the week that we are headed into. And that's what leads to this post-it note. You got when you came in. Go ahead and pull that post-it note out right now, okay? And if you didn't get one, we may have some ushers who will be able to, to raise your hand. You can raise your hand and, and they'll give it to you. But if you were here last week, Matthew talked about how he wanted you to start thinking about people that you could be, begin praying for and maybe even inviting to our Christmas Eve services. Well, this weekend, we want to take it a week further. 
We don't want you to just pray for those people. We want you to write the names of those people down. So here's what I want you to do right now, in fact, even as I speak. I want you to write on this post-it note the names of at least three people in your life who do not know Jesus. They can be your neighbors. They can be your co-workers. They can be the people you run into at the supermarket, the people you sit next to in class, whatever it may be. But I want you to think right now who are at least three people in your life who don't know Jesus. And I want you to write their names on this post-it note. And I'm going to give you a moment to do that right now, okay? So I don't want anybody staring at me because it makes it me very uncomfortable during this time. Write, write three names on this post-it note. Who are three people in your life who don't know Jesus? Okay, here's what I want you to do with this post-it note this week, okay? I want you to put this post-it note in a place where you will see it every single day this week. It can be in the dashboard of your car. It can be in your cubicle at work. It can be on your bathroom mirror. And what I want you to do is every time you come across this post-it note this week, I want you to pray for the people that you have written here. Now I have to say this. If you put this on your dashboard of your car, please pray with your eyes open. Okay? The legal team is making me say that here this weekend. But whenever you look at this post-it note this week, I want you to pray for the names that are on it. And I want you to pray for two things specifically. First of all, I want you to pray for their salvation. I want you to pray that they would come to know Jesus. And then the second thing I want you to pray, and this is a scary prayer, but I want you to pray that God would make it clear to you the role that you are supposed to play in sharing Jesus with them. And all I ask after you pray that is this, whatever it is that God lays on your heart this week, I just ask that you have the courage to go through with it. Maybe it is to invite them to a Christmas Eve service. Maybe it's to invite them out to lunch. Maybe it's to send them a text message, whatever it may be. But I just ask that you have the courage to go through with it, knowing that you are not doing it alone, but you have the good shepherd with you to help you in it. And then you just trust the results up to God. You leave that up to him. That's what I want you to do this week. But as we close here today, my heart is especially for those in this room who don't know Jesus. And I want to let you know, if you don't know Jesus, brothers and sisters, you are missing out. (laughs) Because Jesus is the good shepherd and he is the, the giver of life to our soul. And there are some of you here, you have been spending your life running away from Jesus. And you've been trying to do life on your own. And you come into this place this weekend and you're tired. And of course you're tired. Because we were not meant to do life on our own. We were meant to do life with Jesus. And so I just believe that there are some people today that you are ready. You you need to put your faith in Jesus. And just so you know, it's really easy to do. All it takes is A, B, C. The first thing is A, and that it means to admit. To admit that you're a sinner. To admit that like a sheep without a shepherd, you have gone astray. And to admit that you need forgiveness for your sins. And then once you have done that, the second thing is B. It's to believe, to believe in Jesus, to believe that he is God, to believe that he came to this earth, to believe that he died a a sacrificial death for your sins, and to believe that he rose from the grave. And then once you've done that, the C is to commit, to commit your life to following Jesus, to decide that you no longer want to live for yourself, but instead you want to commit to to living for Jesus. Admit, believe, commit. A, B, C. That's all it takes. 
And this past week, as I was preparing for this message and as I was praying over, I, I just really got the feeling that there are some people this weekend that are ready to make that decision and that God wants to save. And so if that's the case, I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now. So would you all do me a favor? Would you, would you bow your heads with me right now and close your eyes? And with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if there is anybody here who's feeling the need, yes, I, I, I want to put my trust in Jesus. I want to put my faith in Jesus. I believe in him. Maybe I don't even understand all that's going on, but I just know that there is something that God is doing in my heart right now, and I want to put my trust in Jesus. Would you do me a favor? Would you just raise your hand with me, right now with me? Anybody else? If you've raised your hand, you can go ahead and put it down right now. And here's what I want to let you know. I saw you, but more important than me seeing you, God saw you. And if you were genuine in what you said, if you were genuine in admitting and believing and committing, then I want to let you know that two things have happened. First of all, you have received eternal life, secure in heaven. And when you die, you will be able to experience forever in heaven. In fact, right now the Bible tells us that there is a party that is going on in heaven because they are so glad that you are going to join them. And then the second thing I want to let you know is you've received right now the gift of God's Holy Spirit within you. And you literally now have the Spirit of God living within you. And God gives us His Spirit to help us on this journey of following Him. And I wanted to let you know as a part of that, you have a church family that is here to help, help you and welcome you and to help you grow in this Christian faith. And we are here to support you any way that we can. But you need to know that you have just made the best decision of your life. And in fact, I want to pray for you and I want to pray for all of us right now. So Father, we come before you, Lord. And God, I pray for those people I saw who, who, who raised their hand, Lord. And God, I pray right now, Father, that you would just confirm within them, Father, that they have put their trust in you, that they believe in your son, Jesus, and that there is an eternity that is secure for them right now in heaven, Lord. And God, I pray that they would know that they are on now just a, an incredible adventure, Lord. And you were with them every step of the way to, to be their good shepherd, to lead them and to guide them, Father. And I pray, God, that they would know that they have an army of people here at this church that's ready to support them and help them any way that we can. But God, I pray that you would allow them to, to, to sit here today and to leave here today with just a sense of, of peace right now and a sense of excitement and joy, Lord, for the eternal life that you have given them. And Father, for all of us, I just thank you so much for the season that we are in. I thank you for the opportunity we get just to celebrate you and to listen to you and to hear the greatest story ever told, the story of what you did through your son, Jesus Christ, God. And I know there are many of us in this room, we have heard this story over and over and over again, but God, I pray even still we would never grow tired of it, Lord. Because what an amazing, incredible story it is. What an example of how much you love us. And Father, as we close our time right now with just an opportunity to just get a, another look and another taste of that story, Lord, I just pray that you'd fill this room just with your presence, Father, with your spirit, Lord, and you would allow us just with, with new eyes and a, and, a, and, a, and a new vision, Father, to just get a picture of how much you love us, Lord. And so, God, we thank you. We thank you for all that we're going to celebrate this week, Father. 
And we thank you for being the good shepherd that you are. We love you, God. We thank you. And we ask all this in your son's name. Amen.